opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 31, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And today we're talking about Carol Nora King. So this is something I've been wanting to do for a while. Both of us. Yeah, we both wanted to cover these stories. Yes. And it was hard to find the stories. And that should tell you something. It tells you there's a problem. Yeah, like these stories are not getting enough coverage. No, and we're going to talk about why. I know you and I both have talked about, like, we don't understand why these stories, because this is a murder, people are murdered, and why nobody covers them. And the book I read does answer that question. Well, I'm sure the answer is not going to be... It's not something you're going to like. Absolutely not. And and it's not going to be a a good enough reason. I mean, there's no good reason, right? There's no good reason. It's an ugly answer. It's not going to be fun to hear. I don't think it'll resolve anything. It'll just make you more mad. These are important stories. And so I'm glad we're finally... Finally getting getting to it. Yes. It's just not one I thought I could rush through. And I wanted to make sure I found a good book. And I did. And I also found some good sources online. What was the book that you read? Much of the information I gathered for this episode was from a book by Crime Canada called Invisible Victims, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women by Catherine McCarthy, who is an Indigenous woman. So it was written by an Indigenous woman, which I thought was very powerful. And it was a book I could trust. This is going to be a more serious episode. Right. But we've had episodes like this before where we just don't find a lot of sidebars to joke. And unfortunately, this will be one of them. Yeah. So the book I read does bring awareness to the fact that Indigenous women are more likely to disappear and never be seen again and talks about the root cause of Canada's law enforcement, media, and government's indifference in addressing the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. It is difficult to quantify the risk Indigenous women and girls face daily to violent abuse and murder because so many of the crimes go unreported. Yeah, so it's like just existing and being Indigenous. Being born an Indigenous woman already puts them at risk. Yes. No, we can never no, imagine being no, absolutely not. living in that kind of fear. Now, Canada's homicide rate shows that Indigenous people are 10 times more likely to die from a homicide than non-Indigenous people. In 2020, there were 201 Indigenous victims of homicide, which represents 28% of all homicides in Canada that year. And keep in mind, Indigenous people are not the majority of Canada. So for 28%, that's a high percentage anyway. And for it to be of a smaller population... That's crazy yeah, to that's me. a bigger chunk than it sounds like. Right. It's something you would think that would be looked at, would be investigated. But it's not. But it's, it's not. just a statistic. Right. So homicide is one of the leading causes of death for Indigenous women, almost five and a half times greater than non-Indigenous women. But a lot of us don't understand why. So the book I read goes into really great detail about the history of violence against Indigenous women and traces it back to colonial times where they were treated as a problem to be extinguished by European settlers. European men would rape Indigenous women and sell them in the sex trade. I encourage you to read the book if you're interested in this story because it really opened my eyes to what Canada's Indigenous women must be experiencing right now with the nationwide movement for action. 
We're going to talk about it a little bit more in the episode after we talk about Carol's story. Okay. So we're not going to dive into where it all started in the 1400s? It was in the 1400s when Christopher Columbus settled is when it all started. And you and I talked about it a little bit before the episode where it just began a history of indigenous people being seen as something to extinguish by Europeans and they weren't respected. That alone set in place. It was like a domino effect that hasn't ended. And we'll get into all of the things that the government put in place to try and rid the earth of indigenous people. And it's really disturbing. Yeah. I mean, just think about from since the 1400s till today, Mm -hmm. that mentality is still lingering. In 2022. Yeah. It's just unbelievable how such prejudice could continue on for so long. It's not right at all. I mean, like you have to think about this mentality is in people who are in our government, you know, in our healthcare system. And so there's, I'm sure we'll talk about it more. Leaders in the community, people that have pull, people that can sterilize you if you come in as an indigenous woman, people that can take away your children if you're an indigenous couple. That's just part of it. Do we talk about that later? We do talk about that later. Okay. Well, we'll get into the story first and then I'm sure we'll discuss. (laughs) Yes. So we're going to talk about Carol's story. Carol Nora King, a Mi'kmaq woman, was from a small community in the west coast of Newfoundland. In Mi'kmaq tradition, women are given the highest respect and regard since they are seen as the portals through which a spirit comes to earth. The man's role is therefore a supportive one, protecting the woman and family from harm and providing strength to the family unit. There is historical proof of this respect in petroglyphs seen at, let me try this pronunciation. Got it. Kijamakujek. Perfect. (laughs) National Park. The most common images scribed into the slate are representations of the traditional women's peaked hat, indicating importance of women in traditional society. The Mi'kmaq had a matriarchal society, so the women's voice was heard and women made important decisions. So it's a very female-supported culture. And that's amazing. (laughs) Right. Because that's so not like our society. It's not. And so that, to me, must be even more hurtful because it's not like the abuse is heavy coming from within this society. It's coming from outside of this society. And they're attacking the powerful leaders, which are the women. Right. Because unfortunately, in our society, we've gotten a lot better, but women are still not treated equally. Oh, yeah. Can we we talk about uh, (laughs) what's happening with abortions right now? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we already are in a society where women, we don't often have the choices that we want. And so the voice that we should have the yes. equal voice right. against a, a male. But in their society, that was the complete opposite. Women were held at a very high regard. They were loved. They were protected. I mean, I love that about their culture. Yeah, I think that's me too. So amazing. Carol was one of five children born to Carl and Yvonne King, and she was very close to her parents and siblings. In her 30s in 2007, Carol met David Cassie when they started working together for a steel building business in Alberta. They started a romantic relationship, and in 2008, Carol moved out west to a small province in Saskatchewan. In 2009, after securing a job in the construction field, she was able to purchase a small farmhouse in Herschel, Saskatchewan, which was outside of the larger city of Saskatoon. 
Even though she was far from home, Kale remained in touch with her family and missed them dearly. She would speak to either her parents, brother, or one of her three sisters on the east coast of the country via phone or online chat every single day. So a close-knit family. I think you can see that the traditions have trickled down through the generations and that sense of family is still very present. Then in April of 2011, Carol broke up with Cassie. The distance between Carol and her family started to become too much for her, so much so that after three years of living on the East Coast, she decided she couldn't have that amount of distance from her family anymore and made the decision to move back home. So now at the age of 40, she puts her house on the market. Then on the afternoon of August 6, 2011, Carol was chatting via webcam with Brenda, one of her sisters, and her parents when she mentioned having an appointment that evening with the Rosetown RCMP, which stands for Royal Canadian Mountain Police. She was going to report a harassment and file a complaint regarding a disturbing incident that had happened the previous night where Carol saw two men lurking around her property. Oh, well, scary. Of course. Yeah. And does she live by herself? She does now since her and David broke up. Yes. Yeah. That's something she's definitely going to want to bring to the police. Absolutely. Carol told her family that she would get in touch after she got back. The family knew something was wrong when they never heard back that night from Carol. They called the police to make an official report so that the police would go look inside Carol's home for her. But the police refused to do so, telling the family that she probably had just taken off and would eventually show up. God, that's always so frustrating Mm -hmm. when that's their first assumption. Yeah, Uh, she'll show up. It's fine. Now, at this point, does everyone know she's an Indigenous woman? I believe she is known as an Indigenous woman. Okay. The family was insistent with the police that Carol was not the type of person to go and disappear. But despite the family telling the police that it wasn't in her character, and let's keep in mind, this woman is 40 years old, has never done something like this before, and talks to her family daily, has a job, a house on the market, and there's no erratic behavior previously, the police still refused to even go to her home for three days. So three days have passed and nothing's happened. They just disregard it. They just disregard it. And even after the family told the police that Carol was being harassed by her ex-boyfriend and that she was very afraid of him. So just the blatant disregard. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. So three days have passed. Frustrated by this, several members of Carol's family booked flights across the country to come and look for her, while other members started talking to the media and created a social media page to get her name and picture out in the public, hoping to find out where she was. Once her family showed up in Herschel, things started happening and an official missing persons report was filed on August 9th. A search and rescue team started looking for her and her missing car. Witnesses were questioned, but it was a small town and there were only three neighbors close to the house that could have seen anything. Do they question the neighbors? They do. So of those neighbors, one was away due to a death in the family. One didn't see anything. And one was David Cassie, her ex-boyfriend. Oh, how (laughs) convenient. How interesting. Who stated he was out of town working for the last few weeks. When the police finally made a statement to the media about Carol's case, they confirmed that she did have an appointment to give more information and a statement about an ongoing investigation she was involved with, but that she never showed up to that appointment. The police never officially confirmed whether the ongoing investigation had something to do with the harassment from her ex-boyfriend or if it was something else. 
I wonder if David Cassie had any like proof that he was out of town or if that was something else that the police overlooked or just didn't care about. Well, let's talk about that. Okay. But first, on August 10th, after an aerial search was performed to look for Carol's car, her PT cruiser was discovered. It was submerged in a watery slough. And a slough, I had to look up. Because <laughs> I have no idea what that is. <laughs> what it is is a deep hole in the road filled with water and mud. Like a pothole? Well, yes, but much larger because it can fit a car. Wow. Yeah. Is that something that, like... Canada has. County just doesn't um, <laughs> it was fix? A, or... It was a rural road. This is Canada in a rural area, a small gotcha. town that wasn't high priority. If they don't care about murders, do you think they care about holes in the road? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> So some are apparently quite large, and the direction her car was found in was going away from her house, which didn't make much sense. The car was sent to a lab for forensic examination, but there was no sign of Carol in the car. The family offered a reward of $25,000 for the safe return of Carol while ground searches continued, with search dogs and even the public coming to help look for Carol and hand out missing persons flyers. So I guess they're assuming now that this was an accident. Maybe she left on her own. That is actually one of the things they think at first is that maybe she drove into the slough and maybe she got out, but she was injured and didn't make it back. Okay. I mean, it's a possibility. Yeah. Sure. But murder is also a possibility. (laughs) It is. Unfortunately. Yes. A candlelight vigil was held in her hometown. The police, now doing everything they could and should to find Carol, declared her disappearance suspicious. Kevin Booth, a volunteer from Saskatoon, had heard the public request from the RCMP had put out for assistance searching the rural areas in Herschel. Kevin, being a Herschel-born resident, felt compelled to go search the area he grew up in. Kevin said that once he had heard the dogs from Calgary had no luck, seeing as how he knew the area so well, he just felt it was something he had to do. So on August 27th, about three weeks after Carol had been reported missing, Kevin drove from Saskatoon to Herschel in his all-train vehicle and drove to a property he was familiar with as a child. He asked the new owner if he could look around, and an hour later, he found a body. He drove- Is it, Was it near the car? No. It was on the same property, but you have to realize this property was a very large abandoned property, so it wasn't found right near the car. No. He drove to the RCMP and led them back to where he had found it. Hearing of the news that the body was found in Herschel, the family hoped that it wasn't Carol's. The remains were sent to Saskatoon for identification, and forensic anthropologist Ernie Walker confirmed through dental records that the body was, in fact, that of Carol Nora King. The body was found about five miles from her home. Hundreds expressed their condolences to the family on a Facebook page titled In Loving Memory of Carol King. I did go look up the group and found one called R.I.P. Carol King. It was started on August 6, 2011. And it was emotional to read the family's journey because it starts from them trying to find information and being worried. Then there's the part where they're thanking Kevin Booth for finding her. Like people are posting that. Yeah. Like he went out of his way. To yeah. Look so it can give some closure to the family as far as they're able to put her body to rest, which is a very big deal in the indigenous community. They 
they feel that your spirit can't pass on without a proper burial. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I'm sure that meant a lot to them. It meant a lot to them, her family and friends, and then just all the condolences on the page. And then the years that followed, it was a lot from her sisters, her parents, her cousins, and friends leaving loving messages about her on her birthday or holidays, or just like days when they felt especially like they missed her. It was really touching. That's just so sad because, you know, she obviously was very loved and she was family oriented, close to her family. Very close to her family. Yes. And so I'm sure it's so difficult. So there was a funeral held in her hometown in Newfoundland and hundreds appeared in person to pay their respects. It was initially thought that Carol had driven her car into the slough, like you had talked about, and was injured, but managed to get out and had died from injuries while walking to get help. The theory was soon overturned when the police declared her death to be suspicious. However, they would not disclose the cause of her death or any details about the condition of her remains. What? Yeah. That's so... What? Why? And I think maybe some of it is just because that way they can interview people and somebody knows something, a detail that wasn't made public, that could be tied to the murderer. Okay. So So maybe it's used as a tactic to kind of hold back information to see... Like, what sticks? Right. Because if you were there when she died, you would know details that other people wouldn't. But if that's all out in the public, what was that case where they just said everything? They put it all out there so everybody knew everything. And, well, it's probably happened multiple times in cases. But there was one serial killer. They threw all the information out to the media. And so they were getting all these tips in from people who said they knew something. But they didn't have any special information they could keep close to the vest anymore. That makes sense. Okay. Well, I take it back. We'll we'll give them a pass on that because maybe, like you said, it's a tactic they're using. Yeah. But I just also imagine being on the other side of it, being the family that's like, okay, you think it's it's suspicious, but you're not telling us why. And, you know, that's got to be just another layer of frustration for them. Yeah. The devastation that they're going through. In mid-September of 2011, the RCMP requested residents of Herschel to keep their eyes open for any personal items of Carol's, most specifically a purse that had never been recovered. Even with the public request for assistance and a reward being offered for any information that would help solve the case, sadly, no one came forward and no arrests were made. Rumors started going around town about where Carol's body was found. It was one of the most remote places in Herschel and very overgrown, a good place to dispose of a body if someone knew the area. Even stranger was that the exact spot her body was found was previously searched by Carol's own sister, Brenda, and she had not seen anything there. So that would indicate that someone had moved Carol's body after the search had completed in that area. So since it was such a deserted area... The fact that her body was found there is already suspicious. It is because the area would have had to have been known to maybe a local because it was a very remote spot, but it was very overgrown. So it's like she couldn't have, she wouldn't have just like randomly went, right, randomly been found over there. And the police are saying it was a suspicious death. We're assuming that they saw something on the remains that indicated a struggle or she was murdered. Talk also went around about Carol speaking to others about her fear of her ex and how she thought she had seen him prowling around her property at night. 
There was a man, or the shape of a man, bent down by the trees, Yvonne King, Carol's mother, told CBC News, and she chased him with her flashlight and said, get off my property. Days leading up to her disappearance, Carol had expressed her fears about being stalked to the police as well. Carol's ex, David Cassie, was questioned at the time of her disappearance, but he was allegedly working in another province, Alberta, which was verified by two other men. So Cassie was not considered a suspect at that time. Now, I know that we talked about her being scared of him. Did he have a history of um, being violent or was he just very aggressive? Uh, oh, or... your timing is impeccable. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so this did little to stop the rumors going around town, though, since Cassie had been previously convicted in 1998 of a violent sexual assault against a woman where he forced her at knife point into her vehicle, drove to a remote location and raped her on the hood of her car. He was sentenced wow to five years in prison for the attack. Okay, checks all those boxes that yeah. I just asked about. Yeah, so there is violence in his past, taking like, a woman in her own car to a remote location. By knife point. By knife point, yeah. Gosh, okay. In early December, a makeshift memorial with a cryptic message appeared on Greg Martin's abandoned property where Carol's body had been found in the spot where her car was recovered. The passage read, Please don't give him your hate. He's not worth it. The Lord, he came and got me and took me far away. Remember, I wasn't in my body when the devil came to play. Why? So it appeared that part of this passage was taken from a poem written by the daughter of Cindy Ramos, who was brutally murdered in California on August 6, 2009, by two men. I don't know if you remember Cindy Ramos's case. It was one where, according to the medical examiner, during the testimony, she had been stabbed over 55 times, struck 13 times with a hard object, and strangled with twine or small rope. So she had been brutally murdered on the same day that Carol went missing two years later. What is the connection? What's the connection here? No idea. And the and, police and don't why? know either. And, and even Martin, the owner of the property, he said he didn't know who erected the memorial. And he also sent a signed letter with an obituary he received to the police. An obituary from the same person, we're assuming, put the memorial Yes, up? he's assuming it was the same person, and the contents of the letter were never made public, and the signature was illegible. Now, the Rosetown Eagle, a local newspaper, also received a letter, but decided not to publish it due to its, quote-unquote, deranged nature, but they did turn it over to the police, but they never made it public. That's so... Very random. Strange. Yeah. And I don't know how it all ties together. It's just very strange. Somebody tied Carol's murder with Cindy's murder in a different country, but it happened on the same day. Or do you think that the killer did that? And to distract, maybe, or maybe just he thinks he's paying homage to something. Could be, or like you know, he's feeling guilty a little. Well, I don't even think, I don't even think feeling guilty, just wanting to send a message or something. Even though they're not similar, um, no, it's not similar. The crimes aren't similar. The only thing is that they were women and that they both were either killed, went missing on the same day. I don't know who would do that besides the person who actually murdered her. Right. Yeah. Unless somebody, a deranged person did it, maybe being obsessed with the story. Sometimes that can happen. Yeah. There are instances like that. So it could be. 
Then on the morning of December 18, 2011, the local fire crew was dispatched to Carol's former home, which had significant damage from the fire, and it was concluded pretty quickly that the cause was arson. Someone burned down her house, too? Yes, yes. After, this is after she died. This wasn't the first time one of Carol's properties had been set on fire. The first one was in September of 2009 when a second home on the property burnt to the ground. In July 2010, her fifth wheel trailer went missing and was found burned a few weeks later. So someone is burning her her, properties. Yes. And very strangely, Jennifer, the trailer had been found in the same spot where her car would later be found. Isn't that a little strange? So that's got to be the same person. You would think. So after this third incident... The police admitted that the string of fires was interesting and they would be taking a closer look at the first two fires. This person obviously has some kind of grudge against Carol. Carol. I mean, the constant arson that's happening, the harassment Mm -hmm. that she's experiencing, and then the murder. Yeah. Now let's get to David Cassie, her ex-boyfriend. So feeling pressure from the rumors around town, Cassie decided to speak to the news to express his innocence about Carol's disappearance and murder, as well as to address the fire. He said he had loved Carol and wanted to know what happened to her as well. He also told the news that he had put a lien on the house when Carol had decided to move back home so that he would get a fair share of any proceeds from the sale. So why would he want to burn it down? I was like, um, insurance money because you've already burned down two of her things, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's I, that makes that's no not sense. A good, yeah, that's not a great excuse. So this didn't do anything to dissuade the family. He thought that way. He came in strong with that. He thought so, right. But they already knew what Carol had told them before her disappearance. But what do you think about his alibi? He had two people that said that he was working with them. Couldn't that be the two people who were with him when he was possibly, you know, stalking her home? Possibly, right. And Or friends. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I mean, just and my opinion would be he could just be like, hey, guys, remember we were all hanging out that one day working? Yeah, I was here all day, except when I just really quickly went for that five hours and did my laundry. But aside from that, I was here. And they're like, okay, whatever. And did the two guys or the two people confirm this? Well, they just said that, yeah, he was working with us. And that could have been at whatever time. Right. So something was very interesting because on the Facebook page, one of the sisters was really getting upset about she had reached out to, and of course, this is not in the trial. This was something I saw on Facebook, but the sister was talking about how she reached out to David Cassie and she was like, I need to know where my sister is. And he was like, so on that day at 445, I did my laundry. And then I went back at um, seven o'clock with, um, you know, to meet my friends or work, whatever. So she was like, why would I ask you about where my sister is, would you start giving me specific details of where you are at specific times? And she said it was strange to her that he threw out there at 445, I was doing laundry. And then she was like, maybe he was doing laundry because he just murdered my sister and was getting rid of the clothes or something. Yeah, I would think that's totally a red flag. Right. But she was thinking she's like, this is, you know, a lot later than her disappearance that she's communicating with him. And he remembers the exact time he was doing laundry on that day. And she thought that was suspicious. She's like, I can't even remember, you know what, like you and I have talked about this. We can't remember what we did this morning and what time. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. But and he, for you to have like exact time stamps. Exact time stamps at 445. Yes. Really? So again, this was not part of any record I read on the trial. This was um, the sister expressing her frustration. And that would be strange if that was us and we were getting that information from a sibling's ex. Yeah. Like, if I ask you, where's uh, so-and-so? And you're like, oh, well, uh, you know, at, so at, 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 at 5.15, <laughs> I was actually making my latte, Jennifer. <laughs> yeah, it That's very specific. Very specific, yes. So then the anniversary of Carol's disappearance comes up. It's been one year, and it brought a statement from the police that the case was still active in the Major Crimes Unit. Then the third anniversary only brought a single news article about the crime and a brief mention about how the family was raw with emotion when contacted and that the community of Herschel was starting to feel safe again now that the spotlight was slowly fading. I was like, um, they feel safe that a killer's on the loose, maybe, and still around? How do you feel safe? I would think you'd want answers and you wouldn't feel safe. Yes. And it's still a tragedy and it's still an unsolved case. Yeah. So I don't understand that statement by the media. It's like three years have passed. We still don't know who did it, but we're feeling safe again. What are they assuming? That the, the killer has died off and I, like, are we, or it's just news it's has died down from News it. has yeah. died down. I think they feel better because news has died down from it. Yeah. The new lead investigator stated that he couldn't comment on the investigation, but it was still actively being worked. The fourth anniversary brought another rehashing of the events surrounding Carol's disappearance and murder, but it was brief. And then there was another new investigator. Carol's sister, Brenda, did express her frustration and disappointment with not having any answers from the RCMP. Now, here is where the book ends about Carol's story and poses questions to the reader about the lack of answers the family has been given, why the police never acted on the stalking allegations, why the police waited until the family flew out to Herschel and demanded help in person to start doing anything to search for Carol, and why the police never did and still refused to rule Carol's death a homicide, which keeps Carol's case out of the official statistical accounts for missing and murdered women by deeming it a suspicious death. So the book was published on July 5th of 2016. My birthday. Happy birthday. But not 2016. No. Well, it was back in 2016. It was my birthday. (laughs) But But you'd be six now if that was your exact exact birthday. (laughs) Not true. (laughs) I'd probably have to make you go get a nap so we could record again. I still have to do that. You want to be fed? Oh, yeah. It's it's really not different. Okay. Like I said, this book was published July 5th of 2016. I thought that this was the end of the story and it was an unsolved murder, but I started looking online for David Cassie and found a bunch of articles about what happened afterwards. And on July 19th of 2016, Cassie was actually arrested by the RCMP on charges of first degree murder and committing an indignity to human remains. What does that mean? Mm, I was going to look that up, too. I figured you would ask that. Would What's that the, be? Um, it's called committing an indignity to human remains. Because I was thinking maybe it's something where he committed an inappropriate act on human remains. I don't know. I think maybe it's how he disposed of it. Canada, what does committing? Burning it, cutting it up, or doing something to destroy or deface the body. So he could have burned her body or something. Or I guess even if he stabbed her, that would be an indignity, right? Yeah, I mean, cutting it up improperly or indecently interferes with or offers any indignity to any dead human body, whether buried or not, 
is guilty of a misdemeanor. So even leaving a body out in the open nude would be an indignity, technically. That's what it sounds like, the way I'm reading it. Okay. So those were the two charges he was brought in on. Now, Cassie's lawyer told reporters outside of court that his client was going to plead not guilty and stated that Cassie had been very cooperative over the last five years, but that the police were very persistent on pursuing him. The Crown's case was that Cassie had admitted to killing Carol near Rosetown, which was southeast of Saskatoon, and then disposed of her body. They received this confession during an undercover sting on Casey they called Mr. Big. But not to be mistaken with... uh... (laughs) With Mr. Big from Sex and the City. Okay. Exactly. Different one. These kinds of stings in Canada consist of the police pretending to be criminals to gain the trust of a suspect. The case went to trial where undercover officers testified that a five-month-long sting brought about Cassie's confession to the killing of Carol after their relationship ended and that Carol was going to sell the house and not give him anything from it, which had left him no option. Let's think about this. File a civil suit, asshole. Why do you have to kill her? You have no option? So that is what they are assuming his motive was. No, this is what he confessed to the undercover officers. This is what he confessed to? Yes, during the sting. She left him no option is what he says. That doesn't even... Okay, we know money is usually a big reason why people get get desperate or, you know... It sounds like he was desperate. And obviously, he has violence in his past. So maybe just being somebody who can commit violent acts and then having his girlfriend leave him and she is not going to give him any proceeds from the sale of the house, he feels like, okay, well, then it's my right to murder this person. Yeah, maybe he was feeling um, like maybe he had a grudge because she broke up with him and wanted to leave him, too. I'm sure. So there was like some rage there. Yeah. It sounds like he, you know, has some of that. Absolutely does. Yeah. To me, it doesn't seem like that's the only reason he would have committed this crime. No, I think he was... Like you said, he was mad about the relationship and then the financial aspect on top of it was a big deal. Like those together. And he ended up not even getting any money, right? You'll see. Oh. During the sting operation, Cassie confessed to undercover police on multiple occasions that he went to Carol's house, grabbed her, tied her up and threw her in the back of her vehicle, then drove her to an abandoned farm, strangled her and got rid of the body. Then he drove to another location, changed clothes, and burned the clothes he was wearing during the killing. He then drove her car into the slough. In a fifth confession, Cassie admitted lying to the officer about how Carol was killed and said he was 90% accurate with the previous explanation, but that he had stabbed her instead of choked her. He said nobody was with him and nobody saw him. Court documents indicated that when Carol's car was found, both windows were rolled down and the keys were in the ignition in the on position and the gear shift was in the drive position with the windshield, washer, wiper, fluid jug jammed between the brake pedal and the accelerator pedal with the accelerator pedal down. Cassie also told them during the sting that he had hired two men to sneak around her property so that the police couldn't pin the stalking allegations on him. Wow. So he planted Mm -hmm. those people there. He sure did. And one of the men Cassie hired confirmed this with his testimony during the trial. Well, he had it all planned out. He thought so. Then on January 4th, 2019, David Cassie was convicted of first degree murder of Carol King. He was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Cassie appealed the case and stated that the judge should not have allowed the Mr. Big Sting evidence in because any admissions he made were either false or unreliable. 
But in April of 2022, the appeal judges concluded that the trial judge did not err and Cassie's appeal was dismissed. So just recently, just last month, that was just that last month? April of 2022. It came wow. back down from appeal. Yep. Nice job. So was that a valid point that he shouldn't have um, used the Mr. Big Sting evidence? The appeals judge didn't think it was. And they said that uh, he also argued that some of his statements about the jug being under the accelerator was different or wrong. And so that should have been something they should have considered. But they felt that the judge looked at all the evidence and made the right decision. Yeah. I mean, it's a confession. Right. And multiple times, too. And he knew things about what had happened to her that other people didn't know. Yeah. So I think, I mean... Because say somebody's undercover and they're like, Jennifer, so... Hear about that murder. Do you think you had anything to do with... I mean, you wouldn't confess to a murder... To some random person. You know, I was out there. They took my latte and... (laughs) I was like, how dare they? So he is trying to act like everything he said was, I mean, he already is a liar, but now he's saying, well, I was lying about the confession, but the judges didn't buy it. Yeah. Well, good on them. Yeah. And I do want to go back to our discussion earlier about just the underreporting of abuse to indigenous women and of their disappearances and murders. So this is due to centuries of discrimination, like we talked about. And the effects of the awful residential school era where indigenous children were removed from their homes, abused and murdered. And there's also other effects from the government and the practices that they had, like sterilization of indigenous women by either pressure or even without their consent. And there was something I read about called the 60s scoop. And this was hidden under the guise of a child welfare agency. They would apprehend indigenous children, remove them from their families, and adopt them out to non-indigenous homes, sometimes without consent or knowledge from their parents. So thousands of indigenous children were removed from their homes and placed with other families across the country in the U.S. or overseas. This program lasted for decades into the 80s. Wow. The number of kids adopted out due to this program has been reported to be around 11,000, but other estimate it could be anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000. And the numbers are skewed because the program would label the children as non-status in order to hide that they were indigenous because they felt that might be more appealing to adoptive parents. Nina Sigalowitz, a 60 scoop adoptee, said that she was stolen when her birth parents brought her into a hospital as an infant for treatment. Her parents had issues filling out the paperwork and were told to leave the infant in the hospital's care while they were waiting on correct medication. When they came back the next day, their baby girl was gone. That is so insane. Mm -hmm. Now, many of the families obviously did not know that they were adopting stolen children. And this is something that the government... The government created, yes. They sure did. So they stole solely indigenous children. Yes. One of the things that it was talking about in the book is that, obviously, they didn't look into the culture of indigenous people and realize their diet looks very different from the rest of the country. And so they would go into homes and see different types of meats and berries and things, a very healthy diet. But they would then say, well, that's that's not healthy. 
this child can't live on that. And that would be cause for them to take the child. So instead of learning about the culture of indigenous people, they just were like, well, you're not doing what we're doing. So it's wrong. The audacity of the government and those poor families. I mean, they lost their kids and tearing families apart. And then wasn't it recently when... um, was it in Canada where they found that school with all of the remains? Um, they found more than just one school. I think they found schools multiple places over the country with remains of children, indigenous children. It's a huge spotlight on Canada right now for how they have been treating these people for such a long time. And it's just been swept under the rug and hidden, but it's finally out in the open, which doesn't really help the people, I'm sure, feel any better because unless something's being done to do better, how are you going to feel like the government even cares? Exactly. It's got to feel like a very helpless kind of situation. So there's a lot in the book, which... I do plan on covering more of the stories. There is a story about the women who were killed by one of the serial killers. And indigenous women are more likely to be murdered by a serial killer than any other race of women. I mean, they are like one of the most targeted demographics, right? Absolutely. And so for them to not have hardly any coverage or exposure when it comes to these crimes against them, it's just like, what is going on here, people? And that comes from centuries long. Just prejudice, like in the subconscious marginalization. And it has come down through every generation and it has not gotten better for them. I think there is more awareness about it. Because of social media. Yes, absolutely. And there are organizations trying to help, but it's still an epidemic. It's so hard to like grasp the heaviness of this whole situation. Yeah, there was, there's a documentary. I want to find it. I just saw just a flash of it where they were interviewing an indigenous woman and she was crying saying that she's put a statement out on her social media that says, if I ever go missing, it is because somebody took me. And she said, I shouldn't have to just do that. But she said she's so scared for her safety being an indigenous woman and because so many go missing. Yeah, well, never understand the gravity of that just to exist be and and just existing you're so targeted there's so much like hate ingrained against indigenous people for what reason it makes no sense i think these stories are important to get out there because like we said they're underreported and uh, we talked about this possibly doing like a series of multiple episodes to cover indigenous cases yeah yeah Because there's a lot more to cover, and the book goes into detail about many cases, so there's definitely future ones we can do. And I just wish there was more more sources, right? Yeah. Say you look up Jeffrey Dahmer, Jean Benet, and your search is flooded with information, but you can't find as many links, you can't find as many books. It's just not out there. You really have to hunt for the material. Yeah. So I'm glad you found the book that you did, and... But it took me a while. It wasn't like it just was easy to find. That's that's a problem. That is a problem. You know, if we don't have a lot of sources. And why don't we have a lot of sources? Because we're not caring enough. So we got to do better. Yes. Unfortunately, this horrible crime happened. And what else can we say except we just got to do better? Do better, Canada. And even the U.S. has indigenous peoples living here. And we need to do better here. Well, what's next? 
Next, we are going to be talking about our Savannah trip. We are. Oh, good. I can't wait. We have a, um, I guess, is it a haunting? I don't think it's a haunting. It's more like a true crime. It's a true crime slash haunting because we think you may have caught some type of apparition in your camera. <laughs> yeah. But if check you, out our Reddit. If you, ask, if you ask Reddit, it's, what, 50-50. <laughs> We're either clickbait or it's a real apparition. Or it's a demon that went with someone else in the, in the photo. <laughs> with one of the ladies going to Applebee's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so we'll uh, get to talk about all that fun stuff next episode. Oh, I'm excited. All right, well... Do we have anything else? Any other business? I, I think that's it for this one. We'll talk about a lot on the next episode. We have much to fill you guys in on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, stay caffeinated, get hobbies, and don't murder people. Thank Bye. you.